Our text today begins familiarly, doesn't it? It's almost like something that we've read before. 1 Samuel 8, 1-3 tells us, Now it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. We get their names, and we find out that they're judging in the tribe of Judah in the far south of Israel in Beersheba. But his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and they took bribes, and they perverted justice. Isn't this how the story began? We've been here before. Samuel rose to leadership in Israel after God executed the sons of Eli for rebelling against God by violating the terms of the covenant God and Israel had made together at Mount Sinai. And now, at the end of Samuel's life, his sons too have rebelled against the covenant. We're right back where we started. Now, there are differences. First, God condemned, we recall, Eli along with his sons. But God did not condemn Samuel for the sins of his sons. Also, Eli oversaw his sons' work directly. They worked in the same town, in the same location. They were all living in Shiloh. Samuel's sons, however, were not judging in his place, but maybe assisting him in a far remote area in Israel, at least compared to where Samuel spent his time. Samuel was in central Israel, in what were the tribes of Benjamin and Ephraim. He had sent his sons far south to Beersheba, in the tribe of Judah. And that's about 36 miles as the crow flies. Now today you can jump in the car, that's not a bad drive, but in those days it was a couple days journey to go 36 miles. So it's a long way. God's silence with respect to Samuel's involvement would suggest that Samuel had raised his sons correctly, but they had departed from the way of God on their own. And finally, the rumors of his son's mismanagement of their position eventually reaches the hill country where Samuel is living. And in response, the elders of Israel gather together and have a confrontation with Samuel. So the text continues in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to judge us like all the nations." So as Samuel's nearing the end of his life, and his sons were proving to be untrustworthy successors to him, the elders of Israel proceeded to ask for a king. Now, it's important for us to know there's nothing wrong with that request. In fact, God had anticipated in the law of Moses itself that the people would one day ask for a king, and God gave permission for them to do that. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 15, God had said the following through Moses. When you enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you and you take possession of it and live in it and you say, I will appoint a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall in fact appoint a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall appoint a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves, anyone who is not your countryman. So what's the problem with this request? If God had already anticipated they would ask it and had already given permission for it to be asked, then what's the problem? Well, some interpreters of 1 Samuel have suggested that the sin of the people was not in that they wanted a king, but that they didn't wait for God to suggest that the time for a king had come. So that's one way some people read it. However, I agree with commentators. These are just one that I was reading this week, a commentary by Kiel and Delich that the book of Deuteronomy seems to have, do you agree, put the request for a king in the hands of the people. It simply it doesn't say when God decides time for a king. It just says when you ask, you shall have one, right? So to my reading, the request for a king was anticipated by the covenant of Sinai. 
Even more, the way the elders phrased their request, it looks like they read the covenant of Sinai. It's almost a direct quotation of Deuteronomy 17. All that is to say that the elders of Israel are well within their rights, within the covenant, to make this request of Samuel. So given all that, we might expect Samuel to be fine with it. But he's not. That's not how the story progresses. In chapter 8, verse 6, it says, But the matter was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people regarding all that they say to you, because they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they abandoned me and served other gods, so they are doing to you as well. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the king who will reign over them. So why are Samuel and God displeased with a request that the law of Moses says the people had every right to make? Well, it is possible, I guess, that Samuel did think that his sons would inherit his position and he was offended that they wouldn't. That's possible, but I don't think that's likely. Up until this point, throughout the period of the judges, the leadership of Israel was not passed down in family lines. It never had been. So it seems strange that Samuel might have thought that that would happen in his case. In each case, God chose up the leaders who would lead. However, when God responds to Samuel, it is clear enough that Samuel did take this request personally. God assured him, don't worry, they're rejecting me, not you. So my suspicion is that the request of the people was to get rid of judges altogether. They were done with this season. They didn't want any more judges. Now, if you were the last judge, would that offend you? Like, if I was leading in this, in this congregation for however long Samuel led, 40 years, long time, right? And then the people said, everything's been great, but no person from Massachusetts will ever lead in this congregation again. Would you take that person? I would take that personally. And that seems to be what happened for Samuel. It must have been hard to hear that the people he had given his life to serving decided at the end of his time that they never wanted to be in that situation ever again. After having lived under Samuel's leadership, the elders decided no more judges. They wanted a king. I think it would have been hard not to take that personally, and it seems that Samuel did. But God was also displeased with their request. But God's reasons seemed to be different. As we discussed earlier, the covenant of Sinai had made room for the request of the people for a king. So technically, their request was lawful. But God's displeasure in their request was not because they were violating the law of Moses. God saw through that lawful request to the heart of why they were asking. Apparently, Israel didn't just want to be free of judges, per se but they wanted to be free in some way from the leadership of God. In other words, their request for a king was a lawful request to ask God to back off. Their request may have been faithful to the letter of the law, but it had violated the spirit of the law. After all, the way they said it was, Samuel, you appoint a king over us. And that is not what the law said. The law said God would appoint a king. Maybe a godlier request would have been something like, Samuel, we would like you to ask God to appoint a king over us. But that's not the way they said it. And we might think, well, it's just semantics. It means the same thing. But apparently to God, he knew that their phrasing was more than just semantics. It was deliberately phrased. 
Now, if we continue in Deuteronomy, when God talks about what a king should be like, we find the rest in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 16. This is what God described. In any case, he's not to acquire many horses for himself, nor shall he make the people return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Uh, Obviously, Egypt is the place horses are being bred, right? Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, so that his heart does not turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, so that he will learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully following all the words of this law and these statutes." so that his heart will not be haughty toward his countrymen, and that he will not turn away from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may live long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So God is delineating what role a king should play in Israel. The covenant of Sinai had made clear that this king who would rule Israel would not be at all like the kings of other nations. The priority of this king was not to be military might. That's the horse's thing nor the accumulation of wealth or power. That's the silver and gold. The priority of this king was to be the fear of the Lord and the leadership of Israel in remaining faithful to the covenant of Sinai. That was to be the role of this king. But this was not the king for which the Israelites were asking. How do I know? Well, Samuel describes the king they're asking for. Look at Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8 now in verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king, and he said, This will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them in his chariots for himself and among his horsemen, and they'll run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to gather in his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll also take your daughters and use them as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he'll take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give it to his high officials and his servants. He'll also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He'll take a tenth of your and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. Now Samuel's warning about how this king was going to behave sounds nothing like the king described in Deuteronomy 17, does it? This king will have many horsemen. Didn't Deuteronomy just said he wasn't supposed to have many horses? This king will, have, will take many daughters into his service, but the king in Deuteronomy was not to take many wives or concubines. This king would also tax the people heavily, but the king in Deuteronomy 17 was not supposed to make himself wealthy. So why the disconnect? Well, God knew that the people were not asking for a king like the one described in Deuteronomy. They had had one very much in the person of Samuel, and that's not what they wanted anymore. Their response to Samuel's warning makes that clear. The story continues in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19. Yet the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, so that we also may be like all the nations, and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint a king for them. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. 
They didn't just want a king like the other nations had kings. The people of Israel wanted to be like the other nations. Did you notice their language? They wanted a king who would fight their battles. The people in Samuel's day had been led by a prophet. They had been, been led by a leader that was most concerned with their character, with their holiness, with their faithfulness to the law. And that's what they were done with. The elders wanted to be led by a warrior, by a king who would make them a military power. That's what they wanted. Through Samuel, God was warning the elders of Israel that a warrior king, that's what you want, will exact a heavy price from your people. Even so, they were insistent that's what they wanted. They would pay the price. Now, the text has already told us that the Philistines and the Canaanites had stayed away from the Israelites during Samuel's time of leadership. However, I'm sure the Israelites believed that their enemies were just biding their time, right? Just waiting for Samuel to die, and they were going to rush in like a flood. Samuel's sons were wicked. So once Samuel was gone, the Israelites were preparing themselves for a return to the good old days. The days of Eli and his sons. The days in which the Philistines were conquering them, and they were made their slaves. So it might be peaceful to live under the leadership of a godly person like Samuel, but when the godly person dies and there appears to be no other godly person to follow after him, maybe it's a good idea to get a warrior. It's almost as though Israel was preparing itself for a season of rebellion against God in which they would again be fighting with their enemies. And in that case, they thought a warrior was better than a prophet. And God agreed to their request. God agreed to their request. God agreed? To the, why did he agree to their request? Why would God agree to give them the kind of king for whom they were asking? I don't know. Not really. I'm not sure. I mean, who can discern the mind of God? His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. We can only speculate as to why. But we can say for certain this is not the first time God allowed people to make a dreadfully terrible decision and didn't stop it. Why did God permit Eve and Adam to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden? Why? Why did God allow Cain to murder Abel? Why did God allow the earth to become so corrupted that he repented that he had created humanity on the earth and proceeded to destroy all but a small sampling of life in the flood? Why did God permit the leaders of the earth to gather together to build the city of Babel and only after they had done substantial work did he come in and scramble their languages? Why did God allow humans to crucify Jesus? Why did God allow his apostles to be persecuted and many of them to be executed for doing his will? Why does God allow the people and the nations of the earth today to do such evil as they do in the world? Why? 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 I'm not sure. But I can say that Jesus seems to have suggested that this is the way God governs things. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, when Jesus said this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. Jesus is speaking as our king. Jesus is the king God would choose to lead over us. But Jesus is not much like the kings of the other nations. The yoke of a warrior king is heavy and burdensome. We're learning this this week. The people of Russia are learning this right now in visceral ways, right? We learned this past week that the leader of Russia, Vladimir Putin, is beginning what he called a partial mobilization 
to increase Russia's military ranks. We would call this a draft. Can the people refuse this? Are you watching the news? <laughs> I mean, they're trying to refuse it, but it's not going well because this king's burden is heavy, right? His yoke is uncomfortable. A warrior king who's chosen to be commander-in-chief of a military power, he will enslave his citizenry. That's what God is saying. He'll need everybody to follow him into battle. He'll need that. In fact, it's because God was not this kind of king that Israel wanted a change in leadership. Now, it might seem like that's a dubious claim. I mean, after all, the God of the Bible, particularly as he's been revealed in the First Testament, is often caricatured by contemporary readers of the Bible as a tyrannical bully. Right? People say this all the time. Who said, my way or the highway? But that way of reading the First Testament does not hold up. It's true that in certain seasons, particularly when human free will has brought humanity and the earth to the brink of devastation, that God brings judgment. That's true. But before he brings judgment, he pleads with his people to repent, to change their direction. In fact, it was that mercy of God to Eli and his sons that allowed the Philistines to become such a threat to Israel in the years prior to Samuel. To say it another way, God operates very differently than the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth force people to join with them through violence, through taxes, through prisons, through conquest, through force of law. And if they think anyone threatens their absolute rule, they act preemptively to subjugate rebels and to protect themselves against any threats to their power. That's how the kings of the earth work. God did not lead Israel in that way. He expected them to live by the covenant to which they had agreed at Mount Sinai, but clearly Israel was able to not live by it for very long periods of time without consequence. God pleaded with Israel. He warned Israel. He even allowed them to be vulnerable to the world around them in order to reveal to them the peril into which they were marching. But never did he force them to obey. It's true that some transgressions of the covenant required death. But the covenant never allowed for imprisonment. There are no prisons in Israel. You knew that, right? It never allowed for torture. And it never allowed for forced conversions. If it was clear a person did not want to live under the governance of God, that person was either executed or exiled. But long before that sentence was pronounced, God would send warning after warning and offer opportunity after opportunity to change course before the final outcome was assured. Could you imagine a king of the earth finding out someone had passed state secrets to an enemy and rather than acting on it, just said, can you please say you're sorry and tell me you won't do it again? Could you imagine? But that's what God does to us over and over and over again. This is what Jesus meant when he said that as king, my yoke is comfortable. My burden is light. When God goes to war, he asks for volunteers. He never elicits a draft. Why? Well, because God's not like a king of the earth. He can bring victory with any number of people and any quality of people. If five 90-year-olds agreed to go to war and God was with them, they would win. So God doesn't have to draft anybody. It's a voluntary thing. Now, that's not to say that joining God's kingdom doesn't come with any expectations or responsibilities. Far from it. It comes with many. But it does, not, it does mean that God as king will always accept a refusal and allow us to walk away from him and his kingdom. If there aren't enough soldiers, 
You remember David only had 600 soldiers when he was going to recover the people who had been kidnapped from the town of Ziklag, and 200 of the people didn't even want to go. And David said, that's fine, we'll take the 400, and he went and won. Because God doesn't care about the numbers. You remember Gideon had this huge force and God kept whittling it down. He said, that's too many, you'll take glory for yourself. So God doesn't need to do that. Now the question for us is, why did God allow Israel to enslave themselves to a line of warrior kings? Because that's essentially what they're doing here. Why did he allow it? Because they asked. Because they asked. We have to choose to be part of God's kingdom. If we want to be like the other nations, then God will acquiesce to our, our request and he will place us under their jurisdiction. Following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, is risky. And many people don't want to do it. Our God does not always lead us along paths we would have chosen to walk. Jesus embodied this reality fully as his submission to the will of the Father led him to a torturous death on the cross. Jesus' apostles, too, found that God is often fighting battles that we're not interested in fighting, and that God is willing to lose battles that the nations of the earth are always fighting to win. This is why Israel wanted to be like the other nations. Throughout the period of the judges, Israel had suffered greatly because of the covenant of Sinai. Now, it's true that it was because they refused to live by it, but still they suffered, and they wanted a leader who was one of them, who would fight for them whether they were godly or not, whether they were faithful or not. A king who was so much a nationalist, who so believed in Israel that even if the people were decrepit, he would still go to war for them. That's what they wanted. They wanted a king who would fight for the country and for the throne, not for the holiness of the people. They no longer wanted to follow a king who was fighting for their character. Security was more important to them than character. Prosperity was more important than holiness. They wanted a king who wanted what they wanted, who wanted power and security and fame. That's who they wanted, and they were willing to sacrifice any amount of freedom to get that kind of leader. The more things change, the more they stay the same. One of the deepest objections to Christian faith is often aimed at the way in which God rules the nations of the earth. After all, Psalm 22, verse 28, for instance, says... For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. So God's in charge, right? Nobody else is in charge. It doesn't matter where we live. It's all God's, right? Well, that's not actually right. In Psalm 22, that very psalm, earlier it began differently. And Jesus actually quoted from this psalm on the cross. Psalm 22 begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my help are the words of my groaning. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. The reason the writer of this psalm was having that experience is because they lived in the kingdoms of the earth. So later he professes a future time, a future hope when God would rule over all the nations. And that's a prophetic hope, one that will be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus. But it's not one that's presently realized. Just as in our passage in 1 Samuel 8, at present God has given the nations of the earth to the kings and the leaders and the governments that they have chosen. Only the kingdom of the heavens is ruled by Jesus right now. The earth has been divided up by God. He is the creator of it. And jurisdiction has been given to the leadership which the people of the earth have requested. The current shape of the earth is not due to God's leadership. 
The current shape of the earth is due to the leadership we have chosen and enacted on the earth. As the psalmist has declared in Psalm 115:16, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of mankind. Even as Christians, we live much as the people of Israel did when they were exiled into the kingdom of Babylon. They were citizens of another kingdom, but they lived under the jurisdiction of the Babylonian kings. That's how we have been described. We are citizens of the kingdom of the heavens where Jesus is Lord, but we've been scattered into the nations of the earth as salt is scattered into meat. The world as we now experience it is a world that has rejected Jesus as Lord. Its shape and form are as the people of the earth have made it, not as God would make it. And as God answered the request of Israel for a king, he's granted our request as well. Now, in closing, we should be aware today that many in our culture have even begun to profess and to adopt and to some cases wish for a world that is atheistic. Now, in that case, people are not only asking for a king to make decisions when they don't like God's decision, but folks like that are imagining a world without God at all. And God may very well be receiving it as a as a prayer for him to leave completely. Now, if he were to do that, those of us who know the scriptures know that if God were to do what the atheists are asking for, to get out of their business and leave them alone and leave them to nature and their own knowledge, then the whole world would collapse. We would all return to the dust from whence we came. But God promised he wouldn't do that. That's a prayer we know he won't answer fully because he told Noah he would never again give all life to the waters. you remember? That's the sign of the rainbow. But it does seem to me that in our day, God is allowing us a small taste of the world as the atheists have described it to us. A world without God. What do you think? Is it safer? Is it better? Do you like it? If you're you're tempted to imagine a world without God, remember always that life is unnatural. It was imposed on the universe by God. The natural state of the universe is chaos, lifelessness. If God were an illusion, if that were true, then there would be nothing rather than something. There's an old song. Do you remember it? I can remember it being sung. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. If God were an illusion, there would be nothing rather than something. We must learn from Israel's mistake. And it's the same mistake that all nation builders in history have made. We must not imagine a world in which God is not king. And in order to fight against that, you and I have to return to God. We have to confess that Jesus is Lord, and we have to begin to live in his kingdom, even though right now we do not live under his jurisdiction. The kingdoms of the earth are headed to destruction. One day, and this is what Revelation is all about, God will return and Jesus will be enthroned on the earth and he will rule over all the nations. That's the prophetic hope. But right now, he has allowed us to live in the kingdoms we have chosen. And you may not think you've chosen it, but if you have not made Jesus Lord and you're still living under the values and the principles that the world lives by, then you are asking for the kingdom in which you are living. The kingdoms of the earth are headed for destruction. And the thing about our God and the reason Jesus said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light is that he will not force you to join him. 
You must choose to submit to his lordship. One might even say it's the reason you were born to make that decision, which world you want to live in. His kingdom is not of this world, which is plainly to be seen. You won't find it in any constitution on the earth, in any government, in any system, no matter how well-intentioned the people or how godly their endeavor. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is in the heavens. And when it comes, it will come by the hand of Jesus, not by the hand of men or women. Which kingdom do you prefer? The kingdom that Jesus has described or the ones in which we are now living? And you and I may have the benefit of living in one of the best attempts of humans to build a kingdom of God on earth, yet seen. And yet, it's nothing compared to the kingdom of Jesus. But the choice is always ours by the will of God, to choose which kingdom into which we will live. Are you citizens of the kingdoms of the heaven? Or do you live by the values of the earth? This was the choice given to the people in Samuel's day. And they said, you know what? I think we're going to throw our lot in with a warrior king who will fight for our honor. We're kind of tired of being led by a God who's most interested in our character. It causes a lot of suffering for us. And I think we'd rather be safe. But what is our choice? To follow God is a journey into a kingdom that never ends. But it also means the sacrifice of everything. The earth values. Can we do it? You can do it. In fact, if one day you are with God in glory, you already have done it. God is outside of time. For those of us who persevere, there's a version of yourself already in the new heavens and the new earth, already glorified, already free. And what do you think that version would say to you? Don't give up. It's worth it. It's worth it. You make it in the end. Everything is made new. If that version of you that sees Jesus come could speak to you now, what would they say? I tell you, they wouldn't say, seize the day, drink the marrow out of life, enjoy all the pleasures, get the right people in power so you can be the most powerful people on earth. I know that they wouldn't say that to you because the way of Jesus is down. And through humiliation and sacrifice, victory is gained. That's the kingdom of our God. It's not the kingdom Israel wanted. So they wanted a warrior. And God said, it's not going to go the way you think it will, but you can have it. And he's allowed us to have it too. Let's pray that that will never happen again.